Good morning, church. Morning. So glad you're here worshiping with us this morning. Uh, church, we're going through on Sundays in our time together through the book of Ephesians. And we are coming down toward the end. I got about six weeks left in this precious book talking about the application of what it means to live as a follower of Christ and to live out the new man, right? Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. And so we've been asking the question and looking at Paul's answer of how do we live out the new man? amazing. Uh, Olivia and I had our daughter about eight weeks ago. And it's just been incredible to see in just eight weeks how quickly she has changed from a little six pound, 15 ounce newborn to now a 10 pound baby who is just wide awake and, and changing in so many different ways. And we, and we have this conversation between my wife and I of, of who does Reese really look like? And I was convinced when she first came out, she was my wife made over. She was just Olivia. But now as she's, uh, we're getting some more time to play with her and she's awake for a longer period of time. They're, they're, I'm starting to realize she looks a little bit like me to my horror. When she makes some facial expressions, it's like staring in a mirror and we go back and forth. That's just my opinion and family members are starting to weigh in. Who does she really look like? I know some of you have weighed in on that discussion as well. But the things we're seeing with Reese and how she looks like her parents are really genetic things right now. They're innate things. They're not really imitations. She just can't help it. God love her. She's going to look like her parents. But I know as she gets older, there's going to be another uh, level of imitation as she begins to look at us, watch our lives, and then start doing some things like we do. She's going to say, man, I like the way my mom does her hair. I'm going to do my hair like my mom. I want to talk like my mom. I know she's going to say my dad is super funny and he never embarrasses me, so I want to tell jokes like him. She's going to start imitating me. It's amazing how kids will imitate their parents or somebody that they respect, right? Sometimes you may just say something offhanded, not even thinking about it, and a kid grabs onto that, and they say it three. Ephesians 5.1, Paul begins this passage by saying, imitate God as beloved children. Let's read our passage today, Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. God, and I pray for strength as we, as we study this morning. God, and we recognize the task before us as the redeemed of God to imitate the Father. God, I pray, would you guide us into truth? Would you protect us from error, misunderstanding? God, I pray that they would have grace this morning to continue on this journey, Father, becoming more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Children imitate their parents. Paul has told us that a new reality because of the work of Christ is that God is now our Father. So how am I going to imitate God? Notice that this task before us is rooted in our identity. We don't imitate God to be saved. We imitate God from our salvation. Ephesians 4.32, he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I've been forgiven. I've been adopted into the family of God. And this is where we pick up today. Therefore, imitate God. Therefore, I want you to be like God. There's three things in this passage, three questions I want us to ask this morning. If we're going to undergo this task, if we're going to learn how to live our lives to imitate God, the first question that I want to ask is, how do I imitate someone I've never seen? How do I imitate someone I've never seen? Can you, would you agree that it's maybe a little bit of a, a hard idea to how do we imitate God? How do I imitate an eternal being who doesn't even have a body? God has never drank water. He's never slept. And God the Father has never been tempted. How in the world am I going to imitate this incredible eternal God who's perfect? Kind of hard to, thing to think about. Have you ever been in class before and you had an assignment? The teacher says, hey, I want you to do this research project or, or this presentation, and you just raise your hand, and you're like, I don't even know where to begin. Right? I need more information before I get started. I don't even know where to begin with that. I think some of us feel that way. How do I imitate an eternal God? I don't even know enough about God to even start imitating him. In my personal time uh, during the week, I've been reading through the book of Exodus. And so that's kind of been in the back of my mind. But y'all, Moses experienced this exact same thing when God called him. You know, Moses grew up in the Egyptian palace. He uh, knew that he was a Hebrew and that his people were enslaved by Egypt. He knew that they worshiped Yahweh, but he wasn't taught about Yahweh growing up. He was taught about all the other Egyptian gods. And then he leaves Egypt. He goes to Midian. And the Midianites worshiped Yahweh God among other gods. So how well can you actually worship Yahweh if you worship other gods? Not very well, right? So he knew a little bit about Yahweh from his time in Midian, but he didn't know that God was the only God. And then Exodus chapter three, he's watching sheep in Midian and a burning bush shows up. And God speaks to him and says, hey, I want you to go down to Egypt, that empire that you were just a part of, and I want you to say, let my people go. And Moses is like, to quote the song, I just met you and this is crazy. He didn't get it. He knew a whole lot about the power of Egypt. He didn't know a whole lot about the power of God. He didn't even know God's name. In Exodus chapter 3, he says, who should I say has sent me? Who's asking? Who's calling me to do this? And this is when God gives him a name. He says, I am that I am. I am Yahweh. Because Moses didn't have a, 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 the Bible to go to to learn about God. He couldn't open up the book of John and learn about I am. So he, he had to have that revelation from God. But God met him and God gave him the revelation he needed to imitate God. You know, God actually said, you're going to be me before Pharaoh. You're going to be my representative. You're going to be my messengers. And the call for here for us today is to imitate God. And for any of us, we say, well, how do I learn about who God is so that I can imitate him? Paul gives us the answer in verse two, what does he say? He says, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. How do I imitate the Father? How do I know what the Father is like? Because God took on flesh 
and he lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ is how I know how to imitate the Father. Don't miss the importance of John 1.14. The eternal God took on flesh and bones. He was tempted. He slept. He ate. He drank. And if I want to know how God interacts with people as a man, then I look to Christ. This was a cataclysmic shift in the way that we saw God. 1 John 1.1, the apostle John writes, and he tells us how this God in the flesh made a mark on his life. He says, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands. Apostle John starts his epistle this way to say, I saw him, I laid my eyes on him. I touched him with my hands. And I know there's a lot of confusion about who our God is, but I wanna tell you, I saw him and I know what he's like because I saw the person of Jesus. I imitate God by imitating Christ. What does it look like for a person to walk like God in this world? Look to Christ. John 14, verse eight, Peter, or excuse me, Philip said this. He said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We also see in the book of John, Jesus call himself, I am. He says, I'm the same God who spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter three. You wanna know what the father's like? Look to me. So if we're gonna imitate God, someone, where do I go to learn more about Christ? His word. Where in the Bible do I specifically go to learn more about Christ? I didn't even hear you. What'd you say, Matt? Genesis through Revelation. Matt, you're a pretty smart guy. Don't tell Rhonda. If your first impression or your answer was the Gospels, I want to open your mind a little bit. Your answer is, well, if we're going to learn about Christ, we need to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want to open your mind a little bit. Scripture teaches and that all of Scripture is a testimony to the person of Christ. He's in Genesis, y'all. He's the promised seed of Eve who came to crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis, he's the ram that is offered in place of Isaac as a sacrifice. In Exodus 18, he's the Passover lamb. He's the conquering king in Joshua. He's the better king in First and Second Kings. He's the kinsman redeemer in Ruth. He is the faithful husband in Haggai. He is the son of man in Daniel. He is the one who was faithful with all things in Malachi. And in the gospels, he's the word become flesh. In Colossians, he's the one who holds all things together. In Romans, he's the one who makes peace with God. In Hebrews, he is the better high priest. He's the better temple. And every word in this book is a testimony to the person of Christ. This book teaches us how to be connected with God. And God made a way for you to be connected. And he put his presence into a person, the second person of the Trinity coming down so we could understand how to live. God's plan when he made people was to have creatures who reflected his image perfectly to the world. That was his plan. And I fell short of that standard because I sinned. Christ came and he showed us what God's design for people was. And this is why Paul says, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ did. How do I imitate someone I've never seen? By looking to Christ. 
Second thing I want us to ask is we're thinking about how to imitate God. He talks about in verses three through five, some things as, as children of God that we need to steer clear of, some opportunities to sin. Second question is then, how do I keep my way pure? If I'm going to imitate God with my life, I want to know how to imitate someone I've never seen. I also want to know how to keep my way pure. What do verses three through five say? But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. When I say yes to Jesus, I say no to a lot of other things. Have you ever heard that before, talking about a marriage, right? When I said yes to Olivia, I said no to about billions of other women, right? And as imitators of Christ is in a relationship with him, we say no to other things. I think of uh, David, when he wrote in Psalm 119, verse nine, he says, how does a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? He says, in any, any circumstance, in any setting, any, any season of life, we're called to purity. You know, I was thinking, uh, we live in a town for young people where the connotation is not to live a life of purity, in fact, this is the place you come to kind of sow your wild oats before settling down. You know, the city of Ephesus was kind of the same way. It's a very immoral city. It's actually, it was a port city on the Mediterranean. And when the sailors got off the boats, carved into the marble were footprints that made a path that led sailors to the brothels in the cities. This place was a place of great immorality. And Paul doesn't say, hey, I know what our city's like, so, so just be a pretty good person. Now, what does he say? He says, immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you. He says, you need to imitate God. I don't care about where you are. I don't care about how old you are. I don't care about anything else. We have a standard to live to, and that standard is Christ. And so we need to be imitating God as people who are keeping our way pure. There's four kind of things that he gives us in this passage, all that. I just want to give you um, kind of tips for how do I keep my way pure? How do I live a life of holiness before God? The first one is I think he talks about in verse three is don't flirt with sin. Don't flirt with sin. These won't be up on the screen, but if you want to jot them down, the first one, don't flirt with sin. And the way he talks about how we flirt with sin is how we talk. Did you see verse four? And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Just imagine with me on this side, there's someone who practices sin and jokes about sin, right? Practice it and celebrate it. And then on this side, we have someone who doesn't practice sin and doesn't joke about it either, right? They talk about sin the right way. I think some of us might feel tempted to adopt this middle of the road I don't practice sin, but I joke about it. Is that fair? I don't actually do those things. I just, when I get around the right kind of guys, then I start to joke about it a little bit. Honesty, if I did everything I said I was gonna do, I'd be in jail, right? We all would. You're looking at me kind of weird, but I mean, come on, parents, you've said, I'm gonna kill that kid, right? So, I mean, I'm just saying, we all joke. He says, be careful how you talk, because talking about it's flirting with it. And there's kind of a, a short path from joking about it to actually thinking maybe it would be okay for me to do it. We adopt that middle of the road attitude. And he says, don't do it. We talked about last week, just a minute, that it's so important how we talk about things because from the heart, a man speaks. 
The question is, are we actually influencing our hearts with the way he talks? We talk, he says, no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting. These are not fitting for you because you're supposed to imitate God. Second thing that I want us to see here is we need to define sin. We don't need to flirt with sin and we need to define sin. How would the culture define sin these days? Probably be a pretty watered down definition. It's amazing. I think we define sin today as sin is not being true to yourself whatever that means. Or sin is hurting someone else. You can do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt someone else. And then you've crossed a line. Aren't y'all so glad Paul doesn't do that in the New Testament? He gives us the standard and he clearly lays out some things. He says, no immorality, no impurity, no greed, all these different things. There's a high standard in scripture. And you know, Jesus was the best one to raise the standard because he made it a heart issue on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, we're not just talking about murder, y'all. We're talking about hating your brother. We're not just talking about adultery. We're actually talking about looking at someone lustfully. And so as people of the word, we have to uh, preach and teach a standard that we would never live up to, which is very scary. That's very scary for me to do, to preach to a standard that I've never lived up to. But y'all, there's a whole lot more grace there than changing the standard of sin. Amen? We're always gonna fail to live up to that standard, but we always have to be honest about what the Bible says. You know, probably one of the most unbiblical terms that I hear used in small groups these days is the term gray area. We talk about a gray area a lot, and I don't know of that term in scripture. Do y'all? I know of the term conviction in scripture. We see that allowance for freedom in Christ and convictions in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, and 10, but never once is the gray area mentioned. And I wonder, is that opening that term gray area that's accepted in our circles, is that opening a door for us to create a gray area that is a lot bigger than scripture? To say, oh, well, that, we don't really need to talk about that. That's a gray area. Or you can just do whatever you want to do. That's a, that's a gray area. Church, I challenge you, live to the standard of the Bible and you'll recognize that the gray area is a lot smaller than what culture teaches. We gotta define sin and we gotta let the Bible do that. The third one is we gotta give thanks. We gotta give thanks. What he says in verse four, he says, no, none of this filthy talk amongst you, but rather giving of thanks. This is a total renovation of our hearts that we would go from saying these jokes that the world would laugh at or understand to actually giving thanks. You ever said to somebody, you kiss your mama with that mouth? Maybe we should ask the question, you worship your God with that mouth? Because our tongues are supposed to be instruments that worship God. And the question is, are we walking in imitation and purity of the Lord? Or are we falling to the things of the world? We've got to be people who are giving thanks. I was thinking about why do we love a dirty joke? Can I, say, can I ask that question in church? Why do we just kind of degrade and fall into this time where we just talk about all these horrible things that aren't pleasing to God? Why, why do we do this? It's because they elicit a reaction from people. Is that fair? That We talk this way because that's the way everybody else talks, and so then I'll be accepted by people if I talk this way, if I have this filthy talk about me. We like it because it produces a reaction among people. Imagine walking into some of those circles and just saying, let me tell you about what God's been doing in my life. <laughs> what kind of reaction would that get? Uh, cricket, kind of like this reaction. I mean, you'd just be like, you yeah. know, wouldn't get a very good reaction. But what if we, as a community of faith, 
as the church. When I started talking to you during the week, I, you called me up during the week, and instead of people who are talking about things of the world, that we actually start talking about the things of God, that we're being transformed, that we're imitating God together, and I can call you up, and I can get a great reaction from you when I give thanks in front of you, when I tell you about how great God's been in my life. Church, do you see how community needs to change? and be transformed so that we would actually be people, the thing that would mark us would not be filthy talk and talking like the rest of the world, but we're completely different, that we're focused and we're locked in on what God is doing in our lives and we are people who are giving. Thanks is complete transformation from what we see the world do. The last one, y'all, so let me just give these four. We don't flirt with sin. We gotta define sin. We give thanks. And the last one, church, is we gotta remove idols. We gotta remove idols in our lives. Notice verse five. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, notice this phrase here, who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is so easy to gloss over, but it's a very important theology of how we understand sin and how we understand living a life of purity. Paul says that if you covet something or if you're impure or if you're immoral, that's talking specifically about sexual immorality, then we're idolaters. What does it mean to worship idols? The Jewish faith was very unique among all the other faiths of its time because it was a faith of monotheism. There was one God. In fact, this is the uh, command, first command in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. But all the other cultures weren't that way, right? They had dozens of gods. The Egyptians had sun god, Nile god, god of cows, all these different gods that they had. They were polytheistic. They had many, and they worshiped them with the use of idols. God says, hey, I'm the only god. There is one creator, and I'm him. And so the scripture teaches y'all that we may not worship Ra, or we may not worship Baal or Molech, but the moment that we start to put something before God in our lives, then that thing has become an idol. I think so many of us, we look at a Egyptian religious system or a Greek religious system as so barbaric and so unevolved. But the minute I run to possessions, the minute I run to sex, the minute I run to another person in place of God, I'm an idol worshiper. And he says, hey, I want you to know this is idolatry. You may not be practicing some of the, the Greek idolatry that's happening in the city of Ephesus, but anytime I want what somebody else has, then I've got an idol in my life. So he calls us to remove the idols. Church, this may be the part of the message that isn't very fun. <laughs> Don't flirt with sin. Define sin. Give thanks. Remove the idols. This is the character of our God. And so if I'm going to imitate him, then I've got to be committed to fighting against this stuff as a child. And if I'm not, then I'm more concerned with imitating the world than I am about imitating God. Lastly, y'all, in verses 6 and 7, the third question I want to ask is how am I saved from the wrath of God? How do I imitate someone I've never seen? How do I keep my way pure? And finally, how am I saved from the wrath of God? Notice what he says in verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse six is very interesting. He's saying, watch out for people who will tell you that sin is okay. 
That's the context of this passage. Watch out for the people who are the sons of disobedience who are gonna deceive you with empty words. They're gonna get you to believe a lie. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter four. He says that there are gonna be some people in the church at Ephesus who are not going to endure sound doctrine. Instead, they're gonna go look for teachers who are gonna tickle their ears. And the implication of that passage is they're gonna find those teachers. They're gonna find people to say exactly whatever they want to hear. And he tells us the path, the end zone, or the, the goal for this person and that would be that the wrath of God would come upon them. That a life lived of, of just ignoring God's standard and living a life of unrepentance would lead to the wrath of God and to the judgment of God. And I don't know about you, but I know apart from Christ, this was gonna be my story that I would be one who would never deal with my sin, never be able to pay, with my, pay for my sin on my own. And so I would be a subject to the wrath of God. The wrath of God comes directly from the righteousness of God. God exercises or displays his righteousness in two different ways. One, by declaring people right, by saving people, and also by judging people. And he tells us, he says, I, I want you to know that if you go down this path and you're deceived with empty words, you're going to endure the wrath of God. And then I was born, you and I both were born with a target on our backs because I sinned and had fallen short from the glory of God. And so I deserved the wrath of God. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 3. Do you remember this? He told us about our condition before Christ. He said, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature. What was my nature? Children of wrath even as the rest. How am I saved from the wrath of God? He tells us in verse two. He tells us in Ephesians 5 too, how we're saved from the wrath of God. Remember what he said? He said, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. We think of that as his ministry, right? When Christ walked in love, it was because he, he healed people, because he fed 5,000 and so on. But he, then he says, and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ walked in love in two different ways. He did it in his ministry, and then he did it by taking my sin, paying for my sin on that cross. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says it so beautifully. God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the wrath of God. And the work of Christ that Paul's been telling us in the book of Ephesians is that you can be declared righteous because Jesus took your sin. And on that cross, the wrath of God that I deserved was placed on Jesus. It says that Jesus' offering and sacrifice to God in verse two was a fragrant aroma. It pleased God. Why did the sacrifice of Christ please God? Because Christ lived a perfect life. Because he was perfect in every single way. I heard a story once which really communicates this idea kind of a cool way, but it's of a family that was traveling west um, when kind of the time of the pioneers, when the west part of our country was the great frontier. And you guys know there was a lot of dangers um, on, their, on their way to go to California or Oregon or wherever they were going. There was starvation, right, that they could run into, disease, right, wildlife as well. But one danger that was very real for families heading out west was, was wildfire. And I should have checked with Mark Madry before I started talking about this. But wildfire something out west that was, that was very dangerous because if the wind blows just right, a horse and buggy can't outrun this fire, 
right? So if the, if the wildfire was going to overtake you, you couldn't really escape from it. This certain family was traveling out west when all of a sudden they saw some smoke rising on the horizon and they realized that a wildfire was headed right toward them and there was going to be no way for them to outrun it. Now the father, being a resourceful man, took his family out into a large field. He got some matches, he got some fuel that was in his wagon and he dumped the fuel on the ground and he started a fire further downwind. And so that fire, second fire took off and it started to spread out away from them as the wind took it. And as that fire died down, then they got onto the newly scorched earth, the entire family. And when the wildfire came to them, it came up to the place where the grass and the ground had not been scorched, but then it stopped where the family was because that ground had already been burned. And I don't know how accurate that story is <laughs> from a historical perspective, but it's got some really cool gospel truth in it. And that is, y'all, there is one place in this world that is safe from the wrath of God. And it's at the foot of the cross. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and he took my sin. He paid for the wrath of God. It pleased the Father to crush him for my iniquity. I don't understand it, y'all. But he did. And by the power of God, Jesus was raised from the dead. There's one place where we can go to be saved from the wrath of God, and it is the person of Christ. In this passage, it's really interesting. We got seven verses. The first two talk about imitating God. Three through six really talk about uh, staying away from the world. And then in verse seven, he gives us a choice. He draws the line in the sand. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. And the question is, where, where are we going to run? How are we going to live our lives? How are we going to walk? Are we going to walk in love as Christ did? Or are we going to walk in the ways of the world. He says, don't be partakers with them. That word there is so interesting because Paul uses it when he talks about the Lord's Supper. When we take and we eat of the body and the blood of Christ, he says, which one are you going to walk in? Are you going to walk in love or are you going to walk like the world? I think it's also so important for us to notice that verse two is telling us that we walk in love and we walk in sacrifice. We've been empowered to do this. We've been forgiven by God to walk in love, but also to sacrifice for him, right? This is what Romans 12, one says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. As I say no to sin, as I kill that part of myself, that is an act of worship to God and I can give him my life and by the righteousness of Christ, it would be a fragrant aroma. Jesus' was a fragrant aroma. He gave it to us and it pleased God. You just think about the priorities of your life. What are you trying to accomplish with your life? I can think of so many different things for me. It's like, man, when I do this, it's gonna satisfy me. It's gonna, it's gonna be what I was wanting to do in my life. You know, get married, get my education, get a house, have a kid, just for that kid to be healthy, right? In the midst of all of that, where was, I want to please God with my life. I want my life to be a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Church, is that on our priority list? To say, I want my life to 
please God. Because I operate from how am I going to please my friends? <laughs> how am I going to please my wife? How am I going to please this church? I wonder, is this how we're operating? Say, waking up every morning saying, I want to imitate God. I want to be his child. I want to live my life in such a way that he would be pleased. We say sometimes in worship, when they're up here playing, hey, y'all, you're doing this for an audience of one. I don't care if y'all think, boo, throw off tomatoes and walk out the room. That's not what we do it for. Audience of one. Church, in everything we do, everything we do, here, during the week, should be done for an audience of one. Lord, how can I live to glorify you in everything I do? And when we do that, y'all, resting on his work, not ours, we're partaking in the work of Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time together. God, I ask for forgiveness the times that I just, I just partook with the world. God, I just ran to things that would never satisfy. Lord, you saved me. You've given me a new identity. You call me a saint. And I continue to run to things I just shouldn't be running to. God, I ask for the strength that we would stop partaking with the world, start partaking with you. And Lord, as we do this, that our lives would be a fragrant aroma. God, something that, that pleases you. God, I pray for the future of this church. God, we continue to be in every step, Father. Lord, we need you. God, we thank you for this study. We thank you for the work of Christ that gives us our identity, that gives us our forgiveness. Lord, I pray we would live it out, Lord, as imitators of you, beloved children. God, I pray you bless these people. God, give them a week, Lord, of growth to become more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all so much. Y'all are dismissed.